You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 266, Hanging Major Andre. Now, in our last episode, Arnold's treasonous plot to give up West Point and General Washington to the enemy was exposed when Major John Andre was captured near the British lines while carrying a pass from Arnold and documents relating to the defenses at West Point. Washington had been returning from his meeting with French General Rochambeau in Connecticut when this whole plot fell apart. Washington, who was now sitting in Arnold's abandoned home at West Point, first had to get over the shock that one of his top generals, the man who weeks earlier Washington wanted to be second in command of the Continental Army, had been working with the enemy for some time and had plotted to hand the British a major victory. What became immediately clear to Washington from the documents seized with Major Andre was that Arnold's plans involved a British capture of West Point. Washington had just inspected those defenses and now understood why they were such a mess. The plans captured with Andre could have meant an attack was imminent. He didn't know that any attack was dependent on Arnold's successful cooperation, and Washington had to assume that a British attack was coming either way. So Washington immediately appointed Nathaniel Green as the new West Point commander. He sent dispatches to some of his best units in New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Connecticut to march directly to West Point and prepare to defend against a British attack. If the attack was imminent, there would be no time to fix the defenses or wait for the arrival of reinforcements, but Washington had General Green do whatever he could to prepare. As I also mentioned last time, Peggy Arnold was sent back to Philadelphia to be with her family. She was probably the only actual conspirator in Continental hands, but was never tried or even seriously questioned. Arnold's two military aides, Colonel Varick and Major Franks, were initially arrested. It quickly became clear, though, that neither man had any knowledge of Arnold's treason. A court-martial led by General William Heath acquitted both men in November. Franks faced a bit more suspicion since he was originally from Canada and his father was a known loyalist. Franks had also testified on Arnold's behalf at his earlier court-martial. There were now questions about whether Franks had committed perjury to help Arnold escape some of his more serious convictions at that earlier court-martial. But, as I said, in the end, both men were acquitted and continued on with their military careers. Although they went through the formality of a trial, it seems clear that Washington did not consider either man part of the plot. Although he told both of them they should consider themselves under arrest, Washington then allowed Major Franks to accompany Peggy back to her family in Philadelphia. Washington also arrested Joshua Het Smith, the man who had accompanied Andre to the meeting with Arnold and then led him back most of the way to British lines. Smith had been a lawyer in New York. His father and brother were known loyalists, but he personally had backed the Patriots. He was a member of New York's Provincial Congress and a member of the militia. When General Robert Howe became the Continental Army's commander of West Point years earlier, Smith already knew him. Smith's wife was from South Carolina, and the two men met when Smith visited Charleston in 1778. 
Since Smith knew the area around West Point and many of the Loyalists through his family, General Howe appointed him to do intelligence work, something that he continued when Arnold took command of the fort. Many local intelligence agents, like Smith, often proved to be of dubious loyalty, trying to work with both sides so that they could claim support of the winning side, whatever the result of the war. Others turned out to be double agents who professed to be patriots, but just flat-out actively supported the Loyalists. Now, Washington had Smith arrested and brought in for immediate interrogation. The men found him that night at the home of his in-laws in Fishkill, New York. They dragged him out of bed and took him back to West Point for interrogation. There, Washington personally interrogated him, along with five other interrogators. Smith told his interrogators that he believed General Arnold was using him to gain some intelligence from the Loyalists in New York. The man that Smith knew as John Anderson was a Loyalist merchant from New York and had intelligence for General Arnold. Washington informed Smith that Arnold fled to the enemy and that Mr. Anderson was Major John Andre, the Adjutant General of the British Army. Washington then threatened Smith with immediate hanging unless he gave up his accomplices. Smith quickly understood the truth behind his actions and his unwitting role in the treason plot that would give the British Army control of West Point. Smith protested his innocence. The fact that Andre had a British officer's coat when they first met was explained in that he acquired the coat from an officer, but he was really a civilian. It seems a stretch to believe, but many civilians did wear military jackets. Smith would stand trial a few weeks later, and he would also be acquitted of all charges. His claim that he was an unwilling dupe trying to assist the great General Arnold in an intelligence operation was accepted by the court. Even though the Continental Army released him, New York authorities then arrested him as a suspected loyalist. Several months later, he escaped jail and traveled to New York City. At the end of the war, he evacuated to England. Despite the sentiment against him, Smith stuck to his story that he was an unwilling dupe. He eventually returned to New York many years after the war ended. Washington had also been upset with Colonel John Jameson, who had sent General Arnold the letter notifying him of the capture of John Andre and allowing Arnold to escape. To Washington, it was obvious that Arnold was a part of the conspiracy and that informing the general simply allowed him to escape arrest. They decided very quickly, however, that Jameson's actions were simply foolhardy and not motivated by any disloyalty. Now, of course, the number one suspect in custody was Major John Andre. The prisoner at this point was still being held by Colonel Jameson and Major Talmadge when he wrote a letter to General Washington making clear that he was, in fact, Major John Andre, Adjutant General of the British Army. He made clear in his letter that he was not begging to save his life, but rather to make clear that he thought he had acted honorably and he wanted to protect his reputation. A heavy guard transported Andre back to West Point, where he was interrogated further. Then he was sent on to Tapan, a small village along the Hudson River, about 25 miles south of West Point. Major Talmadge took custody and refused to allow anyone to converse with the prisoner. Talmadge, however, did speak with him personally. As the two men rode along the banks of the Hudson, 
Andre pointed out where he had come ashore and where he had met with General Arnold. The two men also discussed Andre's likely fate. Talmadge reminded Andre of the fate of Talmadge's friend and college classmate, Nathan Hale, who the British hanged as a spy in 1776. Andre responded, Surely you do not consider his case and mine alike. Talmadge responded that they were similar, and that Andre would probably suffer a similar fate. This seemed to leave Andre a bit shocked, as he came to terms with his likely fate, and that he would not be treated as a simple prisoner of war. On the day following the discovery of Arnold's plot, the Continental Army's general orders read, quote, Treason of the blackest dye was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, lost to every sentiment of honor, of public and private obligation, was about to deliver up that important post into the hands of the enemy. Such an event must have given the American cause a deadly wound, if not a fatal stab. Happily, the treason has been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune. The providential train of circumstances which led to it affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection. The orders went on to note that General Arnold had nevertheless escaped to the British Army, but that Andre was in custody. Arnold, of course, was universally condemned, but he was safe behind enemy lines at this point. Andre would likely feel the full wrath of the Continentals. That same day, September 26th, British General Henry Clinton wrote to Washington, hoping to save Major Andre's life. He noted that Andre had been sent under his orders and he had been under a flag of truce. Such appeals were futile. Perhaps if Clinton had been willing to trade Arnold for Andre, there might have been a deal. But the British had to protect a high-profile officer who had defected to the British side. Doing otherwise would dissuade anyone else from ever trying to make a similar move in the future. On September 29th, several days after Andre's capture, Washington ordered a court-martial convened at Tapan, New York, to try Major Andre as a spy. Major General Nathaniel Green headed the court, along with Major Generals Lord Sterling, Sinclair, Lafayette, Robert Howe, and von Steuben. Also on the court were Brigadier Generals Parsons, James Clinton, Henry Knox, John Glover, Patterson, Hand, Huntington, and Stark. The prosecutor was John Lawrence the same officer who had overseen the courts-martial of most of the top Continental officers who had faced trial up until this time. The prosecution submitted into the record the documents that Andre had on his person when captured. They included intelligence about the defenses at West Point and a pass from General Arnold for John Anderson, the name used by Andre in their correspondence. The prosecution also submitted a letter written by Andre to Washington shortly after his capture, in which he admitted to being behind enemy lines, out of uniform, for the purpose of meeting with General Arnold to collect information about the defenses at West Point. According to the court record, Andre acknowledged all of these facts, answered a few questions, and then returned to custody to await the board's determination. The only real question for the court was a determination of whether Andre had in fact come behind the lines under a flag of truce. 
the Loyalist Beverly Robinson, General Benedict Arnold, and British Commander Henry Clinton had all sent letters stating that this was the case. They demanded that Andre be returned to British lines under respect for that flag of truce. The court wasted little time coming to its conclusions about Andre. First, that he came on shore from the Vulture, a sloop of war, in the night on the 21st of September instant, on an interview with General Arnold in a private and secret manner. Secondly, that he changed his dress within our lines, and under a feigned name, and in a disguised habit, passed our works at Stony and Verplank's points on the evening of the 22nd of September instant, and was taken the morning of the 23rd of September instant at Tarrytown in a disguised habit, being then on his way to New York, and when taken he had in his possession several papers which contained intelligence for the enemy. The board, having maturely considered these facts, do also report to His Excellency General Washington that Major John Andre, Adjutant General to the British Army, ought to be considered a spy from the enemy, and that, agreeable to the law and the usage of nations, it is their opinion he ought to suffer death. The following day, Washington confirmed the verdict and ordered Andre to be executed on the following day, October 1st, at 5 p.m. Before the execution could take place, British General Henry Clinton sent a delegation under a flag of truce to argue that Andre was not a spy and should not be executed. Clinton was deeply affected by Andre's capture and wanted to do whatever he could to secure the Major's return. He called a conference with seven of his top generals and leading New York loyalists to discuss strategies to convince the Continentals to return Andre. Clinton initially wrote a letter to Washington calling on his humanity to spare Andre. His advisors found the tone of the letter too undignified and convinced him to focus on the notion that because Andre had come under a flag of truce, that he should be protected from any punishment. The delegation sent to Tapan to seek the release of Andre had a letter from Benedict Arnold himself taking all the blame for himself and also stating that failure to return Andre meant that the British would also no longer respect flags of truce. Arnold, in his letter, and the British delegation that traveled to Japan also hinted that if the Americans executed Andre, that they might retaliate by executing American prisoners of war. A Green met with the delegation on the river, but would not allow them to come ashore. He would only speak with Robinson, who he knew personally. Robinson passed along the delegation's position and the letter from Arnold. Green took this information back to Washington to consider. Washington's position, however, remained firm. The only way Andre might avoid execution was if the British were willing to exchange him for Arnold. Since that was a non-starter for the British, negotiations went nowhere. They had only delayed the execution of sentence for a day, now scheduled for October 2nd at noon. Personally, Major Andre only had one request. Rather than be hanged as a spy, Andre requested a more honorable death by firing squad. Since Andre's capture, two of Washington's officers, Colonel Benjamin Talmadge and Colonel Alexander Hamilton, spent a fair amount of time with the prisoner. Both men were greatly taken with the British officer and spoke with Washington on Andre's behalf. 
General Washington, however, remained unmoved. Even granting Andre a firing squad rather than a hanging, the traditional fate of spies, would only fuel loyalist claims that Andre was not truly a spy, that his execution was only a fit of pique by the Americans for being unable to capture Arnold. On the morning of October 2nd, guards led Andre out of his cell and to the field of his execution. By all accounts, Andre remained calm and poised. It was only when he caught sight of the gallows that he realized that his request to be shot had been denied. This realization caused him to pause for a moment and take a step backward. He asked, Must I then die in this manner? After confirmation, he said, I am reconciled to my fate, but not to the mode. He then continued his walk toward the gallows. Andre mounted the wagon that would soon drop out from under him. An officer read the death sentence and asked if he had any last words. Andre responded, I have nothing more to say, gentlemen, but this. You all bear me witness that I meet my fate as a brave man. He handed the executioner a handkerchief to tie his hands behind his back and another as a blindfold. The wagon then pulled away, and Major Andre hanged until he was dead. Back in New York, General Clinton received the news of Andre's death. He issued orders granting Arnold a commission as a British colonel with the provincial rank of brigadier. Although Andre had promised Arnold 10000 for the capture of West Point, Clinton only gave Arnold £6,000. The British hoped that Arnold's desertion would inspire other Americans to desert and to join his new provincial legion. His fellow British officers tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and still hoped that his defection might alter the course of the war. But in their hearts, most of them looked at Arnold and thought, You are part of a rebel alliance and a traitor. Arnold would go on to raise a provincial brigade and we'll get into some of his further adventures as a British general in future episodes. But he never really inspired anyone to follow him into the enemy camp. There was no large conspiracy, and the Americans quickly put out the message that Arnold portrayed his country for money and nothing more. He was universally despised. In the end, only about 40 Continental soldiers joined Arnold's provincials. Arnold did find one deserter in New York that claimed he had left Light Horse Harry Lee's dragoons to join Arnold in New York. Sergeant Major John Champ soon became an aide to Arnold. And Champ had not really deserted, though. He had been sent to New York by George Washington with the intent of kidnapping Arnold and returning him to American justice. Champ, however, never found the opportunity to put this plan into action. A few weeks later, Arnold's wife Peggy also arrived in New York. She had originally returned to Philadelphia to live with her parents, but after the Pennsylvania Supreme Council found letters between Peggy and Major Andre, it banished her from Pennsylvania and forced her to join her husband in New York. The Pennsylvania Council looked into others who had been close to Arnold, including John Jay, Robert Livingston, and Philip Schuyler. In the end, it was determined that there really was no conspiracy, and all of them were exonerated. The standoff between the British in New York City and the Americans surrounding them continued on with almost nothing changed. Next time, we're going to return south, where the over-mountain men prepare to confront the Loyalists 
at the Battle of King's Mountain. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Next month, Knox Press is releasing a new book called The Enemy Harassed. This covers the New Jersey Forage War of 1777. This is really, I think, a critical but largely ignored part of the revolution. I received an advanced copy of this book and think it's a great read, so when it comes out in March, you may want to get a copy. I also want to remind everyone that I'm going to be at two events coming up this spring. In April, I will be part of a panel at the American Revolution Authors Congress, which is taking place at Washington's Crossing in Pennsylvania. In the next month, May, I'm going to present at History Camp Valley Forge. If you can make either or both of these events, I look forward to seeing you. I have details about both events on my website at www amrevpodcast.com. And you may also want to sign up for my mailing list while you're there. There's a link to MailChimp so you can do it, and you'll get details about all upcoming future events as well. I also want to mention that I recently became aware that my podcast hosting site was running commercials on my podcast without my knowledge or consent. So I apologize for that. I think they've stopped now. But to be clear, if you hear any ad on this podcast that's not read by me, I've not approved it and I'm not receiving compensation for it. Maybe that'll change someday. Maybe I will be forced to add ads at some point. But for now, I really want to keep my podcast largely ad-free, and I rely on the support of my Patreon supporters to keep it that way. So if you do hear any commercials on my podcast, please let me know and what platform you were on when you heard them. Thanks. This week, we wrapped up the Arnold conspiracy with the execution of Major John Andre. Arnold will end up going on several raids for the British, and we'll cover all that in future episodes. But of course, death was the end for Major Andre. I should mention there is some controversy over Andre's last words. I only quoted in my main episode the generally agreed upon part 
According to some accounts, though, Andre also said something along the lines of, quote, the manner of my death must reflect disgrace upon your commander. This was a swipe at General Washington for hanging Andre rather than allowing him to be shot by firing squad. We do know that Andre was very upset at the idea of being hanged rather than shot, so it wouldn't be a shock to anyone if he did say this, and some people argue that the American witnesses to the hanging left it out because it was a swipe at George Washington. There's also a story about a woman giving Major Andre a peach as he walked to the gallows, and that from that peach, a peach tree grew over his grave. Now, the origin story is probably apocryphal, but a peach tree did actually grow over his grave. In 1879, a stone marker was added to the burial site in what is now known as Andre Hill. In its first few years, there were three attempts by vandals to destroy it, including a couple attempts to blow it up. Eventually, officials added a plaque that praised the bravery of George Washington, and that seemed to end the hostility against the Andre Memorial and ended the attacks. Of course, by 1879, Andre's body was long gone. Andre was considered a hero in Britain. Two years after his death, in 1782, Westminster Abbey added a marble nave in honor of Major Andre, paid for by the king himself. Several decades later, in 1821, at the request of the Duke of York, and through the efforts of America's minister to Britain, the future president, James Buchanan, Andre's body was exhumed from New York and taken across the ocean and reinterred at Westminster Abbey. They also took the peach tree back to London. It was replanted in the backyard of Carlton House, which was at the time the main residence of King George IV. Perhaps with some irony towards Andre's execution as a spy, the property that the peach tree was on was later occupied by MI6, Britain's military espionage service. My book recommendation this week is a biography about John Andre. There are several of them. Probably the most recent, and a good one, is called The Life of John Andre, The Redcoat Who Turned Benedict Arnold, by D.A.B. Ronald. The author is a British scholar who delves into Andre's life and the motives for the actions that led to his death. This is a 2019 publication, so it's relatively recent, and of course you can get copies wherever you buy your books. There is also a Kindle version if you prefer your ebooks. My online recommendation is a podcast interview with the same author of my book recommendation, D.A.B. Ronald. He participated in a podcast from the Washington Library at Mount Vernon, which is hosted by Jim Ambusky. It's a great interview. It talks a lot about his book and about the life of Andre himself. So if you want to hear D.A.B. Ronald speaking about John Andre and his book, check out my online recommendation. As always, you can find links to it on my blog and website. My question this week comes from Carl DeMarco, who asks, On another podcast recently, I heard about New England's dark day in 1780. The region went dark by 10 a.m., birds stopped singing, cows returned to their stalls. The podcast cited some journals of the time describing the event. But this was in the midst of the American Revolution, and surely there must be some mention of this in military accounts of the day. Were there, in fact, any military accounts in field journals or dispatches? Did it affect any encampments or maneuvers? 
I realized that most of the war had moved south by then, but there were still forces in the north. Do you have any revolutionary insights? Well, Carl, the dark day of 1780 occurred on May 19th. People all across New England reported it as getting as dark as night during the midday. Some believed it was the beginning of the apocalypse. At the time, General George Washington was in northern New Jersey, and he always recorded the weather in his journal. On his entry, which is dated May 18th, probably an error, probably written on May 19th, Washington reported, Heavy and uncommon kind of clouds, dark and at the same time a bright and reddish kind of light intermixed with them, brightening and darkening alternately. This continued till afternoon when the sun began to appear. The wind in the morning was easterly. After that, it got to the westward. I've read some other letters written by people who were in New England on that day, and they don't even mention the phenomenon. Although it clearly impacted the region, most people just continued on with their lives and didn't consider it worth writing about. Any soldiers who were stationed in that region were only on garrison duty, and so it had relatively little impact. Perhaps the greatest effect came around the area of Connecticut. There, the House of Representatives closed early for the day. A legislature named Abraham Davenport, who was in the council, which was the upper house in Connecticut, objected to an early closure, and he allegedly said, quote, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. So, while the House adjourned, the council continued its work through the day. As I said, though, there were people who thought this might be some sign of the end of the world or something like that, but most of the population just seemed to think it's a weather phenomenon, it's weird, we'll all get over it. It could be that the darkness was more intense in some places than others. If people reported it at all, it was mostly as a curiosity as to its source. Later speculation asserts that it was caused by a severe forest fire in Ontario that blew smoke down over the region. Tests on trees in Ontario confirmed that a massive fire was in the region that year, and that the theory then is that from that fire, the smoke drifted into New England and the mid-Atlantic states, creating the general darkening. There were reports of the darkness reaching all the way from Maine to New Jersey. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast.